All right, we're in for a super treat tonight. We've got Joseph Simcox on. We're going to be talking about seeds. He's in Hawaii. He's driving through a rainstorm. The phone drops out a bunch, so I had to edit it a lot. It's a wild bunch of stories he's got. I know everyone wants to hear this one. This is an incredible one. So I'll just get out of the way and we'll listen to it. Here we go. in Hawaii. Well, I am in Hawaii and I'm on the Big Island. Yes. Okay. So what what so do you what are you up to there? What are you getting done? Well, the amazing thing is here is that getting to Hawaii is like coming back to a family reunion because I know so many people and I'm always being introduced to more like your relatives that you don't remember and there's just more and more people with this interest of growing things. I mean, after all, they have the perfect climate and they have a diversity of them. So you can grow just about everything from hot tropical desert plants on the big island of Hawaii, all the way up to mountain forest cloud plants. That's just an amazing potential for diversity. Yeah, and you probably, I mean, because of the way those those islands work and because of the way uh, the climate changes as you go up the orographic effect you probably get unique plants there that you don't get anywhere else in the world right well there's of course the original hawaiian flora was absolutely unbelievable unfortunately most of it's been decimated i mean with the introduction of all of man's vermin for example rats weren't a part of the ecosystem of hawaiian islands and they were brought here on the ships they brought in pigs and they brought in goats and then they even have feral cattle running around the island and all of these uh, creatures had their deleterious effects because the kind of plants that grew here were more adapted to propagation by birds. And of course, there was all kinds of birds living on the Hawaiian Island, probably even the megalopods, those big, you know, flightless birds that would swallow a seed whole and then with their gizzard, clean them off of their outer uh, husk and then deposit them all ready to grow. And so what happens when you introduce things like a pig, which has a masticating potential, is that they chew up seeds, which otherwise would have been planted entire. And so you end up with the Pritardia. It's a group of palm trees. There's a good number of them. They're in many cases severely endangered, not by the hand of man expressly, but more so because the pigs and the vermin, the rats, the rodents just chew them up and eat them. And they were never confronted with this prior to the, the onset of man on the island. So it's, it's quite an amazing thing, and more, more so man that came from the new, the old world, the colonialists. So when all these seafaring Europeans brought their animals, they also brought all the, the rats and everything else. So it's a pretty sad story. And so the original Hawaiian forests have all been, but, you know, obliterated. And now you have these uh, pseudo forests, which have, and uh, supplanted everything from eucalyptus to different types of pine trees to everything. And there's, you know, you can cry about it and you can lament over the loss of the old, but it's kind of a regeneration in a sense. And in many cases, it's much better than barren ground. And so there is uh, some type of respite with nature. You know, at least things are covering the ground. And so when I'm here in Hawaii, there's, uh, there's a bittersweet feeling because it is such an amazing climate uh, situation with all the diverse climates that you mentioned, but it's also, you know, not the old thing. So for a purist, it's a sad example 
of what man has done. And for a person who just loves the green like I do, shows that there's some resurgence of life nevertheless. Just come down from the cloud forest sanctuary, which 40 years ago was a barren cow pasture, because, you know, there's a lot of pastures on the Big Island. And these two gentlemen took it over and turned it into an extraordinary botanical sanctuary. That sounds amazing. So the shallowness of the, the tropical soils, that would make it so that the seed bank in the soils would probably not go back that many years, right? And because the dampness would make breakdown happen. So well, you know, we, we, we talk about that an awful lot. And that was just strangely a point of conversation uh, this afternoon with uh, Norman, uh, who is the curator of the garden, the owner of the garden, we were amazed that once the uh, pigs were, uh, you know, roped off, that these things would regenerate. And that's a surprising thing with many uh, pristine environments around the world. We're seeing that the seeds do, in fact, lie latent in potentia, and that when they're given the proper conditions, they regenerate. Uh, this is particularly evident in places like Borneo, which have uh, demonstrated that when primary forests have been removed at the very location where it was once covered with huge, giant, finished uh, trees, canopy-sized trees, that when they're removed and the sun finally hits the soil again, strange things happen. Herbaceous plants like bananas sprout up from seemingly nowhere and come back to populate the land because bananas don't generate, uh, will not germinate, until the sun hits them, they're, they're photosensitive as seeds are, as some seeds are, and it's very interesting that these bananas then appear out of apparently nowhere, coming back to uh, colonize their terrain. So much of what we see in the world today is a matter of confusion. There's the Austral Island off the coast of southern New Zealand, uh, our prime example of what was considered an obliterated uh, ecosystem of rare plants which are commonly referred to as mega herbs after the colonialists and uh, the settlers brought in again sheep and rabbits and all types of plant eating uh, animals into a land that priorly had not experienced that they literally wiped out everything on the island it was just turned into a semi-grass land and so the, uh, the New Zealand government made a concerted effort to exterminate all of the invaders and what they discovered was indeed uh, amazing. As soon as the rodent population had been reduced at, at, at to a point where it eventually was obliterated, these mega herbs started showing up out of nowhere. Things that were thought to be on the verge of extinction came back. So that shows you some secrets about seeds that we have not necessarily comprehended to this point. I mean, there are great books about seed storage. There's different kinds of seeds. There's what we called conventional seeds such as squash seeds and beans and corn that you dry store for sometimes very long periods of times and they remain viable and then there's other seeds which have been called for lack of a better word non-conventional in which they're seeds that are also uh, termed recalcitrant meaning that if they dry they die and this is an interesting difference but we've often not really understood how seeds function because they're living, breathing, in a sense, organisms that are ready to sprout to life when nature tells them. And we don't know what the symbiotic relationships of bacteria and 
fungi are with seeds. So there's a lot of things we don't understand, but that means that to your answer, uh, it, it is something that is very unknown at this point, how long seeds will maintain their viability. So will the forest regenerate if they're no longer suffering from the pressure of human population, of animal populations that have been introduced? It's a big question mark, but it's happened all over the world and it's proven itself to be very resilient. That's something that we should at least be positive about. Absolutely. I have friends, um, Jeff Lawton and Neil Speckman, who are doing work, and I mean, they're seeing things come back that no one's ever seen in the area in memory. And so there's like fungi, there's mushrooms, there's, there's you know, plant species and bugs and things that they had assumed were just gone, but they were just waiting to come back. Yeah, and, and that is something truly uh, astounding about nature because we, we have this kind of conceptualization in a, in a way of looking at it like maybe an agronomist, like we plant our beans, they grow, and then they die. But seeds weren't necessarily programmed to react in that same fashion because all over the world there have been, on a continuous spectrum, changes in the environment. There may have been long periods of drought. There may have been long periods of inundation. And between these two extremes, there was the, the homeostasis proper moment for when a seed to germinate. So seeds seem also to have a trigger which protects it. Particularly interesting are the, the denizens of the deserts, all the xerophytic plants that basically just mean like or live in dry places. They have adapted a myriad of ways to cope with the harsh environment. So seeds that fall with the greatest chance of right before the probable rain. And so the, the, the advent of the dry season is also the advent of many fruit ripenings because nature has timed it in such a way that the, the fruit matures, the seeds are perhaps eaten or dispersed or, or a mammal or insect, and seeds then fall to the ground in consequence when the rains are most likely. That is one type of adaption. Another adaption mechanism is what is known as the aging scenario. And that's when certain seeds fall to the ground and may sit there dormant for months, even years, waiting for the adventitious period of rains to return where germination and survival is most ensured. And so that's a type of mechanism. And then there are seeds that can be provoked by falling in the right crack, falling in the shade, having a slight amount of humidity. So there's a myriad of ways that seeds have adapted to germination, desert, and to proper survival. There's also the uh, likelihood that many seeds need some type of symbiotic uh, scenario in which they're falling under what we call nurse plant. That's a plant which offers respite from the searing uh, desert heat or the, the, the dryness. And so these little shrubs or little serve as nurturers for new plants get in from the sun. So deserts are really spectacular. For, and, uh, for human kind, the desert is also a dangerous place. Now, surprisingly, all over the world, uh, human beings have adapted to living in it and become quite worse. There are often enormous diversity of plants which are useful to human beings, either as water stuff or as food stuff. And because an intimate relationship in many areas of the world between plants and people, 
there's also a path to benefit the future of humanity. And I like to tell people, desert, not the camp, but rather a place that holds huge potential. Yeah, the soils in the desert preserve nutrients perfectly because they're so dry. And so potentially when we green the desert, we have enormous um, nutrition and nutritional density uh, that could be had on our food. Well, and, and that is that is completely, there's a certain uh, hyper storage of nutrients, I would say, in certain desert plants There's a, because they take a long time to mature. So there's a tendency for certain seeds, they take for Brahma bean to store a good amount of energy because that could last maybe even decades possible germination. So it's like a food storage warehouse for the plant, for the young plant. Other cases, mentioned the fertility of the soil, they're not privy to the general leaching of excessive rains as it may happen in a in a in a rain area where there's constant tropical rain deluges. So it's it, it can stir the leaching of the soil. But also, when we speak of the basic green revolution, we're often uh, in categorically of what we imagine the green to be. That is, verdant fields with light, lots of plants that may require irrigation or some type of protection from the sun. My new vision for a desert is adapting plants, crops, not much to the conditions, because humanly, in the way I'm speaking, they're already adapted, but compiling them from various places in the world where there's regional uh, uh, similarities between one desert climate and another. So how would I see the green of the desert in a very state bring plants from deserts world that were synonymously related in terms of the climate, the type of rainfall, the type of uh, seasonal variance. So these could then be put together in a cropping system that would offer the potential in the greatest harmony with nature. Does that seem feasible? Does that seem uh, maybe an enlightened approach rather than irrigation, which often leaches all these uh, rich mineral sources out of the out of the soil? Absolutely, and it's a lot less work. <laughs> it's working with nature. Yeah, in, in a great way. In a great way. Working with nature gets us a lot farther. Now, there are, because of the, the relationship that humans have had with plants in the desert, there are huge opportunities for, shall we call it, I hate to really say it this way, improvement. What I mean by that? Well, the cacti. There's over 2,000 species of cacti in North, Central, and South America. And of those, it has to be pointed out that all of them are probably edible. Not all of them are necessarily palatable, but the fruits of those cacti probably edible. Now, what the potential is, we put them to some type of horticultural selection, the enlargement of fruits, the sweetening of fruits, the selection for greater productivity, greater fruit load on plants. So we can literally cacti, which in many cases are only viewed as ornamental, apart from ficus, puntia uh, ficus indica, the prickly pear, and a few others like the squirrel, and actually start creating orchard fruits for the desert, something that very people imagine. When I sat down with um, Jeff Lawton, I introduced this concept to him in that his palette of plants was very limited because he was showing me what he was doing in one of the wadis in, in uh, Jordan, 
And I thought it was very nice, but after, you know, contemplating what the planting consisted of, what species of plant he was using, I that he was very limited in his ecological approach because for the most part he was using plants that were typically Mediterranean, had perhaps been cultivated in that region of the world for even thousands of years, but it did not offer the greatest climate compatibility because he was going to climate extreme. Going into the wadi necessarily introduces you to climates that are very compromised plant growth because just scenario, many of these areas are almost barren. So in order to be populated with plants, you want to give good ground cover. Not only do you want to use a strategic permaculture practices, but you also give yourself a hand uh, up over everyone else. You're planting plants that are supremely adapted to extremely arid environments. And when I told this to Jeff, it was like went off in his, uh, in his mind, because then he realized after a few of my explanations how bad potential was. He filmed me and he interviewed me on this. It was like a 30 or 40 minute taping and I never saw the result, but I knew that both he and his cameraman were supreme by the potential. Absolutely. I mean, I think Jeff's experiment there, which is called greening the desert, um, he, he was trying to show the other workers and the other farms the same plants that they're planting, basically, in a different arrangement. So he chose how you could do it with greater success. Right, exactly. right, right. And it, I mean, he brought in materials that were excess from other, like organic matter from other farms. He, you know what I mean? He, he bought trees, you know, all those kinds of things he did. But we really could go to these areas and have someone like you or some that you train, and we could go to these areas and you could find the wild seeds, and then we could wait for the rain events, strategically, like plant in earthworks that are permaculture, but we could set up a system that doesn't look commercial, but could be commercial, even though it looks like wilderness. Absolutely. You know, Matt, one of the things that has uh, compelled me to do the crazy thing that I continue to try to do, tracking down the world's fruit plants, you know, locating them, eating or tasting them if at all possible, if they're with the fruit or eating their vegetative parts or eating their tubers, is that I want to be able to take a grand uh, scenario and present it to people all over the world about what the potentials are for horticulture. More often than not, the way we view horticulture is an agro-industrial perspective or a horticultural perspective based upon crops that either are already heavily used, as we talk about improvement or adaption to even newer and more extreme environments, or we talk about the few lesser uh, planted crops that have potential for uh, more rigorous uh, application. So what is really out in the middle of nowhere, the true orphans of the food plant world, are plants that may have been used as uh, food by foragers or no or even people who can't nature, and it's amazing to me that there hasn't been more horticultural attention to these rather than the application of biotechnology, the genetically engineered, supposed advantage. And it's just something to me that really, really, really requires an amazing consideration. I am in a deluge here, which uh, could easily turn into a, uh, 
it could easily turn into a flash flood because I'm down here in the valley uh, on the on the slopes and it's being like cats and dogs right now. I can't believe we even still have connection. I'm going to put my flashers on as we, as we move along here. Amazing. You know, you got clearer as you said that. Yeah, I mean, it, it was it's bone dry here. So we're in one of the lava slopes right uh, kind of northwest of Kailua Kona on the Big Island. And up till just two or three days ago, it was bone dry here. And the rains have returned. And so like Serengeti, I expect these uh, uh, places to be incredibly green within a week or two. Well, that's good. So speaking of seeds and diversity, you have, uh, how is Gardens Across America your project? Yeah, the inspiration came. I, I don't know what the exact uh, epiphany moment was, but it just, it just uh, seemed to me that a wonderful way to share, say, the uh, excitement that I have, like a little kid, the wonderful way to share the excitement about growing plants, especially vegetables and fruits and, and, and garden crops, was to share them with people who weren't necessarily the choir. And, and you know, you understand this, Matt, because both you and I have many, many friends who are vegetable collectors or who are extreme gardeners. They collect every vegetable they can get their hands on. They just love the diversity. They have an extraordinary passion for saving seeds. But there are so many wonderful Americans who have the opportunity to partake in this and yet have no clue. So when I got the idea of Gardens Across America, it came to me that if I sent people really, really rare vegetable seeds, and I told them that they were really rare, and I explained to how they could be a part of saving something that was on the verge, say, of even extinction. And when I say that, I don't do it with hyperbole. I actually mean there are plants that are so forgotten or may have been cultivated by a single grandpa or maybe a single grandma. These are varieties that are on perilous edge because if they aren't grown out, let's say I have a handful of seeds here. In some cases, I've had a few one or two feet. Someone just gave them to me. If these aren't grown out in a timely fashion, it decreases to the point where they may not be recoverable. And so to share seeds with all these gardeners is, as you know, a way of assuring that they will be renewed. And as they're renewed, they're also duplicated and multiplied in a way that allows us to continue the sharing. So it really is a, a sharing because when I give a seed to somebody, I feel bigger than I really am because I realize I'm sharing with them something that someone else shared. And so it's an extension of myself, but also an extension of the person who gave it to me and the person who gave it to them and continue back to where first originated the variety. And it's the main thing, and you may know this, we had a woman at um, the first annual seed swap San Diego at Balboa Park this last weekend. I mean, it was, it was an amazing event. Don't you agree? Yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was, to me, I mean, it was, it was the start of something brand new. It was the start of, people really coming out for seeds and i feel like it's going to be something that everyone starts doing every spring where it becomes a, an american tradition where we bring out our seeds we swap them before we start planting in the spring well you know and this has been a point that i've spoken to with so many people 
uh, in next week, for example, I will find myself in Pikeville, Kentucky. And what's especially uh, interesting about this is this is kind of an event which was created and which focuses on the incredible traditions of Appalachia. So it was uh, conceived by Joyce Pinton, who is an avid farmer, an incredible seed saver, a woman with passion for the olden ways, and it's now in its fourth year, but we are expecting it to uh, tally over 600, maybe 800 attendees this year, whereas when it first started, it was just a handful. So people love tradition. They love the meaning of life, and they love to preserve things. It's just that when we get into the hectic world that we live in, paying off mortgages, paying car payments, and the college, we often lose touch with the way it passed, and it's this resurgence all over the nation, which has me just extraordinarily excited, so much so that I can say that in 10 years, 15 years, I believe there's going to be literally an astounding return to the earth. Because as I told the executives of all the people, we're on the cusp, we're on the verge of what we have in America. Not appreciably do we normally speak about the if we somewhat speak of that in a derogatory way, you know, farmlands around former uh, small towns and cities that have grown beyond their bounds, but in reality, we've created a potential with all the, the lawn of a new, multiple, diverse America. This is Downey. And I hope you can hear me over this deluge because it's raining like cat dogs. Unbelievable. I can't hardly see. I mean, I have my blankets on. I'm going 25 miles an hour because there's not much traffic here. Uh, oh, man. Wow. Well, you know, is there anything more permaculture than that? I love your business platform that you share seeds with people so that they become your growers as they become, you know, consumers and seed savers themselves. And then the seeds themselves that you're getting. You're adapting to all the different regions that they're being planted in, and then you're getting half back from everyone and mixing them again. So you're enriching the genetic possibilities within your own seed stock as you're enriching other people. It's so permaculture in so many ways. And it also, the, the vehicle itself is regenerative. So I, too, echo that. I believe... You know, Right. I mean, it just it just has to be continuously reiterated in your mind because you know there's a, there's a certain element of collectiveness in me because that's probably one of the um, traits that is allowed to go out with such a serious George attitude. So that in, a, in being a collector, there's certain um, a love affair with the rare, with the hard to find, with the uh, difficult to discover, and that collectiveness. Is somewhat possessive because you want to have the rare thing because somehow sets you apart from the other collectors. And that's often been something psychologically studied about collectors. But when I thought about it, I realized that I'm not a collector because I like to share. And the reason I like to share is because it's the grand picture. It is absolutely meaningless for me to have accumulated 50,000 species and varieties of food plants in the season that we have, if I don't share these with other people. Now, certainly, there's a practical element where, you know, people sit there and point out, well, you have to pay for your way. 
And so, yes, I do collect seeds and I do sell seeds, but the seeds that are being uh, handed out to people with the gardens across America are very unique in that we often have only a tiny little handful of them. And handing them to somebody and trusting them, that's a tradition, giving something that you yourself treasure. So I have this rather vague um, statement that I make. I said, we don't give pearl to swine. It's the whole thing my grandpa used to say, meaning you don't give it to people who don't appreciate it. So one of the, the simple qualifications when we start handing seeds out to people is we just want to ask them to really take this seriously. They're not going to be giving, being given free seeds. They're being given extremely valuable seeds, and we're entrusting with them a part of human tradition. And when people understand that simple gravity, because it's not that life-threatening to a human being, but when you think of the gravity of what the beauty is, they often realize that it is a obligation to try their best to grow up. And that's what we want to invoke. We want to invoke an obligation so they protect as much as possible. Can't go against the whims of nature if it's your plant, but you can certainly try as much as possible. There's a certain charm to the whole thing, which makes people overall serious, and it enhances people are giving seeds out to where they're fifty percent of the seeds. They can give them to all their friends. They can out. They can seed banks. Just magic, absolute magic. Well, I'm looking over at all the seeds that you gave me, and it's a lot of responsibility, but I'm really excited to take it on and to give you back half, half the seeds that I get and to make it, make it happen. So, I, it, it, when, when, and I know this is an experience that everyone has when they meet you at these conferences or at these events. It is a whirlwind, and the stories are flying by, and... I didn't, I don't remember all the stories. So I thought, okay, well, you, you know, yes. I thought this would Excuse be a me. wonderful opportunity to give people a glimpse into how you work, how, how deeply these, these, these seeds were embedded in the lives of the people that grew them. Um, and also to give people some of the ideas of what, what you have and what's super rare and what's really neat because I'm gonna take pictures of these seeds, and I think I'm gonna maybe put uh, put like a little video together um, so that it plays along with with our with the podcast, so people can see pictures of these seeds and get excited. Oh, that's fantastic, Matt! It's absolutely beautiful. And I mean, uh, you know, I I myself thinking about the little person's glimpse, uh, a little lady who goes in with a dash of. Narrow little plastic bag, a little bag that's been tied into a knot, and she pulls a little, a little cupboard, a little humble home, and she pulls them out, and she looks, and she says, uh, "This is a very beautiful pepper." Or the people who have been collectors have given me things and they trusted me. You know the story, of course, of the, the glass jam corn. The story of how Carl Barnes introduced that to the world. The story of so many rare seeds. It, it's just it's so humane. It, it, my own grandfather and my own grandmother on my mother's side or my father's side because they were both African. And I remember, you know, the, the beautiful ways that my grandmother had, how she was such a such a congenial person to everyone she met. And part of what she did, sharing things from her garden, it was just 
Houston, and it's so beautiful. Even today, when I think about my grandma, I tear up, and I often find myself tearing up people that see it. And so, if you ask me questions that I gave to you, uh, I'll try and respond stories if they're if they're vivid in my mind. So, if you want to take a shot at it, let's try. All right, all right. So. One of these seeds that really caught my eye and kind of, it doesn't even look like a seed. If I saw it on the ground, I would think it was a burnt piece of, of organic matter or something. Or maybe, uh, yeah, rotten fish scales or something. So I, already, that... I already know what you're talking about. Let me guess. You're talking about what, what I also called the wolf pearl. This is seed of Memordica cochichinensis. Or, the... no, wait a second. I know which other one you're talking about. It's a little black seed. That's all in kind of uh, very rough. It could look like just a burnt piece of bark. Yeah, Akocha Kagua. Yeah, that's like Clantra Pedata, known as Akocha or as Kaigua. It has many other names in uh, the regions where it grows in South America and in Central America. But the Akocha is a fantastic member of the or squash cucumber melon And so it's a vine, produces which magically are like slippers. And in fact, one of the names of this plant in colloquial English is the lady slipper gourd. And so the slipper gourd is a hollow fruit that has the black seeds that you, you know, they're really fascinating because they don't look like seeds in a conception of seeds, which just shows you how seeds really are a marvelous thing in themselves, just in their myriad of forms. There's great books that let uh, John microscope photos of seed, and it's amazing the diversity and shapes and forms of them. This is Anthropodata, the one collected in Colombia. It's an extraordinary fruit. If they wait for them to be almost mature, they they will transect them, they'll cut them in half, and they'll take the few unusual seeds out. And then usually they either stuff it with rice or some type of uh, meatloaf, and they bake that in oven. Now, the immature fruits are delectable and can be put into a salad like just a cucumber, and it's really delicious. And it can also serve as a wonderful salad vegetable or as a pot herb because you can cook the young tips up or eat them raw vegetable. We've collected many varieties of this, and now when I share them with people, I talk about the ladies' support and it mesmerizes them tell them how it's a wonderful vine, and then I tell them about beautiful things and show them, and it just catches people's attention. Unfortunately, I don't have a particular person to reminisce about. I'm sure as you go through the list, I'll pull somebody up. Okay, it's all right. I got plenty here. So, uh, the Zucca Valvarena. Oh, okay. So the Zucca Valvarena uh, was a squash which I was given to by a community of seed savers at the Terrelia uh, Seed Exchange in uh, Terrelia near Genoa, Italy in 2004. And we ended up, uh, I was into this amazing seed exchange because there is a friend of mine who is a journalist, a garden writer in Italy, and uh, she wrote me the Giuseppe, and that Giuseppe was a nostro scambio di sensi. So I went to the seed exchange, and in one day, trading seed that I had, we were a 
120 obscure amazing varieties that were Suzuka, by the way, the squash and Italian uh, was found. And it was given a beautiful girl with Rasta hair and a beautiful neck. I remember distinctly. She said it was a wonderful squash. Most likely a cucurbit related to uh, butternuts that we know. Amazing. Okay, so Celeste's Grub Cake Spinner. Oh, this is beautiful, beautiful uh, Hubbard variety. This squash actually looks just like a spinning top. So the reason it's called Spinner is uh, respect of its nature. It looks like if you were to hold it by its stem, it would look just like a spinning top. And so Grub Cake Spinner, this, this is squash that had no name. It fell in possession uh, with. It was probably bred selected up in New Hampshire five, uh, eight decades ago. And it was grown out out there. And to my, uh, and to my uh, understanding, it was never given a name. And so I started growing it out with my Susan in Michigan. And it was such an extraordinarily beautiful red-orange squash that we named it after my daughter, Celeste. Celeste, and we called my little daughter Grub Cake. With eyes, she was a little toehead blonde, but she was eyes covered with dirt because she loved being dirt. And so, the last grub cake spinner. That's where <laughs> thing, which, which is you know really really cute because it tells that we have the opportunity with our families, with our friends, and communities to create varieties which will become a certain sense passed me down to future gardeners. And you know, that's what's so fun about it. It's something folklore. And it's been folklore all over the world. That's why we come up with these amazing, you know, kind, sweet, and cute names. Absolutely. And then they pass down through our families, and they become local legends, and then they they go they can keep going on. What what what, what are some of your favorite heirloom names? So purple Amazon. Oh. This bean yeah, looks now, incredible. The purple Amazon, you the purple Amazon bean. Yeah. That that bean was given to me originally. I was it was I remember again distinctly when I had my first bean in my hand. It was in Painesville, Minnesota, Minnesota, on around uh, uh, the end of December. So not not much before Christmas. In January it was not much after New Year's, I drove up in the yard with my with my father and with my son, and it was about 20 degrees below zero. It was a bright, sunny day, clear skies, must have been a high-pressure system, and it was frigid. It was knocked on this little uh, white house's door, and comes to the door a non-steaming man by the name of Robert Lowe, and he took me into his house, and he... And he was a bean collector extraordinaire. Uh, Robert Lobet was also a very frugal man. He loved to eat cereal from what we could glean because he had reconstructed cereal to hold all his beans. And as he opened all these uh, boxes and set them on tape, it was just an amazing uh, montage of colors. And the mosaic that was before me was presented with Robert holding out his hands and saying, Joseph, these are poor men. Remember that expression to this day. And among those jewels that 
he was to present to me was this beautiful amethyst purple bean that you're holding right now, the, the purple Amazon, a bush bean that Robert selected out of over time, he isolated, created his own strain, and would give him all these wonderful names. Certainly an amazing, amazing story. I think Robert named maybe a couple hundred different bean varieties with his passion. And unfortunately, but Robert passed about seven, eight years ago, but he always helped uh, very dear in my heart because he was one of the founders, co-founders of the Rare Consortium. So, thank you to Robert. Wow, and so the the Rare Seed Consortium that's um, that is online, and people can visit that and order seeds at any time. And you guys have a a running um, latest uh, release, and you've got limited supplies, and so it's it's really incredible because it's an opportunity to get things that no one else has. Well, yeah, and I have to make a point about this because the Rare Vegetable Seed Consortium has it as a uh, and ever is completely uh, not lucrative. So we don't, we're not touching, we're not calling ourselves a non-profit, we're not calling ourselves anything. So we'll see consumption of growers. So it was the nation idea that later went to America. It was, there was a bunch of us who were avid seed collectors, avid gardeners, and we just wanted to start sharing uh, rare seeds among us. So that was the impetus behind the formation of the seed consortium. Until this last year, we never sold a single seed. So what happened is I had uh, accumulated a great number of very rare seeds from all over the world, and I was to deliver them to certain commercial interests. We had them uh, shipped from various suppliers in Holland who are, who are uh, sources for phytosanitary permits and the proper limits to import them uh, into the United States. And so we had a bunch of the seeds come into the United States. And some of our uh, customers did not want to purchase the seeds. So here I was stuck with, you know, several hundred varieties of extremely rare seeds with no home. And so I asked Mr. Susan, I said, Sue, would you turn this into an endeavor, endeavor for yourself? And she told me after, you know, not very much thought, she said, absolutely. And so that was the birth of the Rare Vegetable Seed Consortium company and that is something which is completely independent of me run by my sister uh sue so oh, wow. they both have the same name but she's turned it into a commercial endeavor where our you know the seed not just group the rare vegetable seed continues to have an interest in just in collecting and maintaining a huge number of rare seeds now just to point out some of the things that can happen people who purchase and gardens across America may inadvertently be giving some seeds to the rare vegetables consortium because anyone can figure out I spend an awful lot of money traveling. And every year I I spend, you know, a huge amount, almost every single bit of income goes right back into travel. So it's an investment of love.
Breaking up, Joe. I never sold a vegetable seed for something like seven to twelve years. Of course, never vegetable seed was really ironic because everyone would say, "What are what, what are you going to do with so many beans? I mean, why collecting beans? I mean, what's the purpose of it?" Well, it has a purpose, and both you and I know it's preserving human tradition and its relationship to nature and the food we eat. Absolutely. You broke up a little bit in there, and I'll edit it out. But um, are you almost to a place where you can uh, get a clearer signal? You think? I'm I'm, I'm right at the Waimea, and it should give me about another twenty minutes to clear. So I'm pulling into the town of Waimea here in another uh, another mile or so. So I should have clear coverage here. Okay, great. Yeah, it is sounding clear. So. We have this bean here, this lima bean with no name. That uh, Did you find it, or is it Patrick, or did you both find it? Okay, so, so let's go through it. Is it a black, flat, long, kidney-shaped lima bean? Oh, it it's, it's this black and white one. It's the black and white one where the inside of it, where it connected, is a touch black, and then the rest of it bleeds inward with black. Okay, so it has like commas of black on, on a white pattern. And that seed was not collected by neither I nor my brother. It was a dear, of a very dear friend of mine who had been to Brazil and had found it somewhere in the southern uh, states of Brazil. And he brought it back and he was able to throw it out and he multiplied it. He had like five or six seeds and I said, fine, Sherman, he's a very dear friend and he's a, he's a food specialist. Uh, raising all kinds of rare vegetables and everything. So Dennis gave me a few seeds, and I, in turn, took some of those seeds while I was uh, working at Salton to, uh, you know, Baker Creek, helping them and repair an exciting variety into a greenhouse in, uh, at uh, their, their school at Red Gold, Connecticut. And what we did is we planted it in the greenhouse, so the first two seeds were multiplied, and we got maybe 15, 20 seeds. And at that point, I sent them out to a few other people who were able to multiply. So the original one or two seeds from Dennis Sharman, we now have handfuls of them, and I gave the two to you or the one to you so that you can try your hand at being a part in taking this most magnificent bee. Dennis Sharman's name gave it to me, and it was from Brazil. Absolutely amazing. I can't wait. to That, that one's super exciting because it's one seed. And I love how you do that because it really gets across how important these seeds really are. Well, it's an insurance policy that we're doing because maybe some of the people that have given the seed to you, maybe some of the people that have given them will succeed. And those few who succeed help us to continue to preserve these rare varieties. And so, it, it, as you know, it, I have already said that these seeds, you know, they they don't live forever. They're not viable. They don't germinate. After many, many years, some of the seeds actually become um, non non viable. They won't germinate. So the more people that we get to grow these, the better chance that we have to preserve them. So what was one or two original seeds hopefully becomes bags and bags of them, and then we start to become even publicly. So, yeah, it's a great... Uh, responsibility, but no one's going to be over the head if you don't succeed. <laughs> it's just a, a heartfelt passion. 
Absolutely. So uh, here's another one. The cucumber heptuogen giant. Oh, my gosh. Okay, I, I'm like a medical doctor, so I excuse myself. It's called H-E-P-T-A-G-O-N, heptagon, and all that referred, it was, again, a cucumber without a name. So part of the process of helping other people talk about the cucumber is to give it a name. So I gave it the name heptagon giant because, first of all, the cucumber that this seed will make is giant. It'll weigh anywhere from two to five pounds. The other thing is that they have five sides, five distinct sides. So if you look at it from the top, it would look like you were looking down on a pentagon because the top is flat and the bottom is flat. So if you know about multi-sided uh, uh, forms, this is a seven-sided cucumber. And the reason I gave it a heptagon name is because that is what it is in geometry. That and it was collected neat. along the yeah it was collected along the Burmese border of Thailand and a one woman had it and I was in this super hot humid humid place it must have been ninety five degrees hundred percent humidity and by the time um, I got out of there I was drenched in sweat I got out of my hair and uh, I found these uh, ladies selling these these cucumbers and which one was just astounding. And what I noted is that there were vines growing all over the place, and despite the heat, despite the humidity, the vines were gorgeous. They were untouched by mildew. This is an amazing, amazing plant. So the first seeds that I got back, actually, a great number of them were lost. I got back with one or two seeds for myself, and I had another four or five in a little bag. And I ended up giving them to a friend of mine by the name of Val Hermit in Florida. I think she got one or maybe two seeds. And I said, Belle, please do everything you can to get this beauty to come true. So at the end of the summer, she writes me, she said, guess what, Joe? Your one or two seeds have now turned into over 1,000, and I am sending you 500 feet of the and they're pure. They haven't crossed with any other cucumber, and you can hand them out to as many people as you want. And, I mean, that's part of the magic. The, the superabundance of nature produced many, many more seeds than nature would require which in turn give us the possibility to harness our nature and make food. That's amazing, sir. Yeah, I'm looking at another um, another vine, the gak fruit. I'm really I'm really excited about this one. So tell me about this from Vietnam. Okay, so the gak fruit that you have actually are seeds from Thailand. Oh. Yes, hello? I said, oh, because it says Vietnam on it. Oh. Okay, excuse me. Okay, so, uh, well, maybe I'm not, not speaking correctly. I don't know if, uh, if these, these could have been from Vietnam or they could have been from uh, Thailand. In case that they originally Vietnam, we'll assume they're the Vietnamese ones. So my Jack project actually started, you know, about five or six years ago. I was, I was commissioned by a botanical investor in Switzerland to go to, to Vietnam with the express interest of starting a cac plantation in Costa Rica and other parts of, of America. And the reason is because the cac is really like, like no other fruit. It's in the squash and cucumber and, and melon family again, the so-called cucumber. But it has a almost blood burns fruit about the size of uh, a small football. So the, the, the question about the gag fruit then is why would this big guy who was an 
your investor, why would he be so incredibly interested in Gagfruit to hire me to go on a, on a basically a world jaunt to track down propagation material? Well, I myself asked him what he wanted to do with it, and I said, do you want to sell this as an exotic fruit? You know, I mean, it doesn't taste like fruit, it tastes like vitamin E, but it turns out that the guy was a billionaire and for a good reason, and what he wanted to do with it had something to do with what he had as another business. He had a shrimp farm. It wasn't an ordinary shrimp farm. It was a 200-acre organic shrimp farm in Central America. So his idea was that he was going to take these red aerial fruit uh, bits and feed them to the shrimp so that they would gain all the lycopene, all the beta-carotene, and all the vitamin A and turn super red. And being organically certified, they would be two to three to even four times more expensive than regular shrimp. So his plan was to use the GAC as a foodstuff for his shrimp. That's Amazing. pretty genius. That's pretty genius, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> Better than the artificial food coloring they're using, right? Well, sure as heck is. I mean, it certainly shows it the way their will when it comes to in a natural solution, man, get it right on the head. This shrimp were just an incredible success. Wow, that's awesome. So let's talk about let's talk about loche, loche squash, right? Oh, loche is absolutely amazing. So there is an extraordinary history about squashes, and when I first saw my first loche, it was love at first sight because the loach looks kind of in shape or form uh, butternut squash, you know, bulbous uh, and with kind of a long neck. But the diversity is, uh, it differs from that. Okay, I got to start over on again. So the loach is, is a beautiful, beautiful squash. It looks kind of like a butternut. It's kind of a bulbous and an elongate neck. But it, the, the similarity stopped there because the loach is actually still forest green with kind of a, a flush of waxiness to it and added warts. So it has these warts all over a beautiful forest green body. And it's not a very big squash. It may only be about 8 to 10 inches long. But it is extraordinary in the fact that there's records and evidence that has been raised for at least 6,000 years in the northern regions of Peru. It specifically comes from a region which is known as the Lombard. And the cuisine of the area is renowned all over Peru. And in fact, because Peru is up and rising in the culinary world as one of the great epicenters of gastronomy, it's rising all over the world. Today, to my knowledge, the loche isn't known outside of Peru. And this makes it even more exceptional because you would think a squash with thousand years of history would be growing all over the place. But the loche is very unusual because it has been cultivated for so long. In fact, there are terracotta figurines, which are found in some of the uh, ancient Peruvian sites in the north, that are exact replicas of this squash today. And they date back five or 6,000 years ago. So that's extraordinary evidence to what I'm claiming. But the other interesting thing about the mochi is that it has been raised by humans for so long that it has this unusual propensity to not produce a lot of seeds. 
And one would have to ask, well, why is that happening? Because seeds are the manifest way that plants reproduce, or so we thought, because the loche has and is traditionally reproduced by cutting. So the farmers who grow fields of loche will go in the field at the, towards the end of the season, and they'll take cuttings of the end of the plant, and they will replant those after stripping off a few leaves back in a new field. So the plant seems to have adapted to this caretaking by humans by realizing that it doesn't have to make many seeds. I mean, this, of course, sounds plausible. It, of course, sounds ridiculous. But when scientists studied the loche and they studied the pollen of the loche flowers, which is just like a typical cucurbita moshada flower, they discovered the pollen was completely viable and the receptiveness of the female flower was completely legitimate, so there was viability, the squash just didn't produce very many seeds. In the case of uh, most loches that have the bulbous end, there'll be anywhere from 5 to 20 seeds in a, in a squash. But the funny part is, many of the loches don't even have the bulbous end, and they're just like one mass of solid squash flesh. Now, what sets the loche also apart from every other squash that I know, and I've been collecting squash for well, more than 43, 44, 45 years now. I've been collecting squash all over the world for 45 years. And I have probably thousands of squash that I've collected, different varieties and land races. I've never seen anything like the loche. The loche actually has a unique perfume, which is uh, exclusive to Lambayeque cuisine. So what do they do with the loche? They'll cut it up and they sell it in small pieces, maybe uh, two or three inch thick piece. And people will take that home and when they're making, for example, a guisado or they're making some type of carne or meat uh, dish, they will take the casserole and they'll cut the piece of the loche and rather than submerge it in the water, they keep very little water in the uh, casserole and they'll just slow heat it and slow cook it and allow the flavor of the loche to permeate the entire uh, setting. And so you have this aromatic squash. How aromatic? I tell people, and my brother uh, tells people, that piece of loche in a room can be detected. I mean, it just has this musky, Swedish kind of squashy smell that just is perfume. And it's, it's, it's all it's own and I have never seen or smelled anything like it anywhere else so that's the story of the loche and so now we have a few seeds uh, here in, in various parts of uh, Europe and the States the goal is to grow them out and share this amazing uh, tradition of Peru with people all over the world something really really beautiful don't you think absolutely and the fact that you can just cut it uh, you cut part of it and then get that to root and keep it going uh, makes me think I should just keep it, keep it over winter in a greenhouse too, and just keep it going because, I mean, oh, absolutely. So what I absolutely what I hear that the um, farmers do is the vines with the most beautiful, and in a sense they're they're taking an exact clone of the mother plant, so they're actually reproducing exact that they want to have, just like we do when we graft apples or pears or plums or peaches. Yeah, I'm definitely going to do that because that way um, I'll perpetually have uh, have continuous seed from this. This is amazing. 
So you gave me five of these seeds. I'm so excited about this. Yeah, it's it, I, I tell it to many people. So like that you've been with those needs that I think an awful lot of your gardening skills. Okay, is really really important to me, Matt. Yeah. Really important. Yeah, it's important to me now too because that story ties me into the heritage and the ancestry and the and and the responsibility. And I feel like this is why it's you know I'm focused on kids. But it's a message that resonates with everyone. It's really a, a message that's I, I teach families now more than ever, because it, this, this is all tied up in families. It's all tradition. It's all heritage. It's all who we really are, and it's just so exciting. I mean, that's why people like you and I dedicate our lives to this stuff because the story has more meaning than any of this stuff you can get through TV or movies or video games. That stuff doesn't mean anything compared to this. It's, it's artificial. What we have here is we're bearing a heritage that enriches every single human being on Earth because just the very fact that squash eventually made their way to the old world after Columbus supposedly discovered the Americas is a part of a heritage. And now... It feeds people all the world. Corn was taken from the old world to the new world. And everyone eats corn right down to the livestock that feed on it to fatten themselves has a part of the original heritage of the people who maintain that year by year, decade by decade, century by century, millennia by millennia. It's an amazing story. So how do I have so much enthusiasm and energy and passion uh, there may be a disbalance of some sort in my psyche, but it just brings me to life to realize that this is this is an amazing part of the history. It's something that every day I get up, I wake up sometimes at four o'clock in the morning and I start thinking about the things that I can share with people. Like this morning, I was uh, I was up and I was thinking about a fruit that I'm carrying around right now that comes from the Congo. It was actually raised by a dear friend of mine here in, uh, in Hawaii. It's called the oyster. That plant has been domesticated by the people of equatorial Africa, countries like the Congo and the Cameroon and Nigeria. And here we are in Hawaii, thousands and thousands and thousands of miles away, growing something that some person or some group of people got their eye on several, several thousand years ago in a jungle and eventually tamed and eventually domesticated so that we... And this other side of the world can now enjoy its fruits. It's, you know, mind-boggling. Yeah, and it's also, I feel like, it's, it's th that's, that's the kind of history we should be showing in schools rather than the, 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 the history of war. We should be showing the history of food, the history of families, um, because they're just as valid. So I'm looking over at here. What is Teluk, Armenia? Luke. Okay, Taluk is uh, part of the, the story because I, I gave a talk at the California Horticultural Society along with um, my girlfriend, Irina Stonescu. We gave a talk about Armenian foodways and the culture and traditions of the Caucasus Mountains. So in the Caucasus Mountains, there's a very strong tradition of being wild vegetables. Taluk just happens to be one of dozens of wild uh, vegetables that the 
people of Armenia have harvested probably for thousands of years. Chaluka happens to be closely related to Kinopodium album, which in many parts of North America is known as a weenie. In fact, it couldn't be anything farther from the truth. Kinopodium album, or lamb's quarter, is probably one of the most delicious pot herbs, green cooked vegetables that you possibly have, and it comes up by itself. So Kinopodium is already a family with many wonderful edible plants. And what this Kinopodium is, which I don't know the specific scientific name because that's somewhat obscure because of the diversity and the multitude of forms that these Kinopodiums take on, this particular Kinopodium known uh, colloquially in Armenia as Tulub is such a delicious vegetable. I have to just describe it this way. The traditional method of preparing it is to harvest the leaves and allow them to dry in the shade so they keep a nice dark green color. Then they're reconstituted by soaking in water, and then they're uh, boiled or, or pan sauteed to form the most delicious spinach equivalent that I've ever had. And the tulupin that you're holding there is a part of this tradition, part of something that was brought by Armenian immigrants to the United States, a very dear friend of mine gave me the original seed uh, in uh, the Central Valley in California, and he, he almost handed it over with a little tug back because it's so precious. He said, Taluk is the best vegetable in Armenia, and if I'm giving it to you, I want you to remember this. And that's my dear friend uh, who has taught me so much about Armenian food. Great, great tradition, incredible uh things to discover. I've been to Armenia in this last year uh, four times, and it's every time that I go there, we just discover something new with a food tradition. Wow. You know, uh, I really have a lot of respect for Lamb's Quarters, or Lamb's Quarter, because the cross between Lamb's Quarter and uh, and quinoa is is the red Aztec spinach. The uh, huazantal, or, or I don't know how you say it, but it 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 pre it's the the it's the it's what it's what tortillas were made out of before corn tortillas were the thing. Absolutely. Well, there's all these kinopodiums and their integration and their their breeding with other species of kinopodiums is a really a very complicated thing to sort out. There's a, a scientist at uh, Brigham Young University mine, who is working on what the various ketopodium relationships is. So for the person who wants to there's a lot of evidence that ketopodium album uh, may have been in the Americas even before the European settlers of the modern era. And that gives us a lot of questions about its uh, original um, so distribution. It also has this question as to what it bred with, because there's things like Goofoot, which is Kinopodium and of course you have uh, Kinop, which are found all through South America. You mentioned Quinoa, you mentioned the other ones, and so there's a lot of diversity. And the question is, how did these all mix and match, and how would it spread around? So all good to eat as green vegetables, but as we know. Uh, quinoa now an extraordinary grain, uh, uh, and it's it's really very very interesting. Yeah, and all the lambs quarter plants that I've ever worked with are completely ignored by the deer, um, by the rabbits, and by all the wildlife. So 
I use these these plants on the edges of my system and they act as a buffer that the, the animals come to and aren't really interested in. Um, and so they don't go into my systems very deeply. So I really, really like these cats. And I think that a lot of, a lot of gardeners are going to start using lamb's quarter and horizontal and quinoa a lot more because they grow so vigorously and they're an eat all. You can eat the seeds, you can eat the leaves, you can eat the stems if you cook them. Well, it's best said in this case, uh, the chagrin is on us for not eating the weeds because this is a vet that people shouldn't be fighting to pull out of their garden, but should be fighting to cook. So speaking of weeds, pigweed, or I should say amaranth, um, you have Bangladeshi stem amaranth, and I feel like that's pretty interesting. Because I've got, I've got the orange giant, which I do the, the leaves, and I do the seeds from, and I make popcorn and porridge and stuff with, but... I've never really spent much time eating the stems. Well, and that's because this particular group of uh, amaranth seems to have uh, sprouted up in, in, a, in a certain manner of speaking in the areas of the Ganges in West Bengal uh, and also in uh, Bangladesh and perhaps even in China, the, the so-called stem amaranth. So like there are Absolutely. I think that uh, amaranth is one of those uh, things that is going to explode in the next year in most people's diets. Uh, quinoa became so popular, but a lot of people can't handle the saponins, and horizontal doesn't have those saponins, and neither does amaranth. But the, the, the idea of having amaranth for something not for seeds is, is amazing. So how thick does it get at the base? Because mine... I can't reach my hands all the way around the base of my orange giant amaranth. The stem is raised, and it isn't allowed to get woody, of course, so they don't let it grow until it goes to seed, because then you start developing a very fibrous base. But probably it's hard to just kind of bring the information, because when it's about two feet long, stem is still very succulent non-fibrous, and probably anywhere from an inch and a half to two and a half in uh, diameters. It's a big vegetable. It's a beautiful vegetable. Saying that, I remember I'm also having a, a four feet tall in bundles in the market, so uh, it's cutting up and eating the stem and all the leaves and everything, so it's a eat-all vegetable. That is brilliant. The eat-all, you know, Carol Depp, she's all about the eat-all greens, and I, for a long time I followed a lot of her stuff. 
And so that's what most of my grains well, are. Well, yeah, because, you know, one of the things that most of you don't realize is that if you pull up a lettuce, you should rinse it and saute them as a vegetable. But most people have no clue of that. So it's, it's kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater when we trim up these vegetables the way we do because for the most part, the entire plant is uh, edible. Yeah, and the fibrous parts you can use for uh, making stock. So next up, we have Absolutely. the. Absolutely. So, yeah. So next up, we got the pretzel bean. So this is a cow pea. It instantly reminded me of the clay and uh, the, or the iron and clay uh, cow pea, but it, it forms yeah, a pretzel. Yeah, it's appearance. It's a, to- uh, it's a yes because it's a taupe uh, color bean, kind of a light yeah, and it's not really a distinct form. Uh, you just get it that way. But this particular group of cowpea, uh, I didn't name of that cowpea. V-I-G-N-A uh, or Vigna, how you pronounce it in Italy, Vigna unguiculata. So Vigna unguiculata, its center of diversity, of course, is Africa. And the country of diversity in Africa are Zambia, Botswana, and loaded different kinds of cowpeas. One of that biodiversity. They have also spread throughout East Africa. And for what we know, the so-called pretzel-type pod, because what they do is they start growing, but they seem to recurve on themselves, so they they swirl around in kind of a loop. So you can also call them a snail uh, cowpea, another way of describing the curlicues. So these uh, seem to have their origin in East And uh, in in, uh, Kenya, there's a few varieties of these. In fact, um, one of the ones that's been on my to-get list that I still have not tracked that down. It's a variety of these curly Q pods that's flat and it's said to have no spring vegetable that is so cherished and I'm still in the state unless this so-called pretzel bean, which has in its American heritage uh, traceability to the Amish, um, they call it, some people call it the Amish pretzel bean, in with the slaves who were brought to America or immigrants from Africa and then somehow found its way into areas like Pennsylvania and maybe uh, Appalachia and then was dispersed that way. I mean, there's, there's a lot of obscurity how vegetables are passed around, although from the uh, distant viewpoint, we're able to put these pieces together and explain how it happened. All right, so we, we, have, we have a few more here. Um... We have uh, the C. maxima Sayanka Argentina. Sayanka, yes. Sayanka is likely uh, the result of a breeding program happening in Argentina in the 19th century. I've never grown this squash out. We only had a few seeds. And as it turns out, many of that from that group of, were bush hubbards, which are bush buttercups and bush hubbards which are Cucurbita maxima, one of the four species of squash. So the Argentinian variety, mostly bush, are really peculiar because they don't vine out. Most of the fruits are uh, with center uh, stem, and sometimes in them five or ten, I had one that had 15 squash on it on an area by about one yard by, it was by one yard square. And that was wow. how big the plant was, but it was filled with these squash that averaged about four to eight pounds a piece. 
Wow. Argentina is one of the areas that was recipient to many of the squats in Peru, Bolivia. So there's a great diversity of uh, the so-called Hubbard type of squash, great diversity, and this is just more proof of putting that we have some wonderful things for us to discover in their food traditions in Argentina. Wow. I, that, I can't wait to do that one. So now, here we go. Here, this is probably the thing I'm most excited about. I'm, I love seeds. I love corn. I love uh, vegetables that I can just plant and then rely upon. But I am enamored with beans. I, it, you know, I, I, someone could just offer me beans on the street and I probably would just take them. Um, I, I, I mean, they're, they're one of those things where it's like, you know, I don't know if I trust this person, but it's beans. So we have the Bosnian pole bean. by a friend in uh, near Graz, uh, uh, and she is a bioculturist in, in European terms, or in the German, uh, that she's just an organic farmer. And so this particular bioculturist is a collector of rare beans, and she's a very good friend of mine, a very dear woman who is a naturopath. She's also very interested in preserving the whole way. In particular, the needs of what is known as the Alpine regions of the Alpine regions of Austria, the Alpine regions of Switzerland, the Alpine regions and the Apennine regions of Northern Italy, going all the way down into the provinces of former Yugoslavia with some mountain chain there. So she's kind of like the Alpine zones, the mountainous zones of Southern uh, Europe. So uh, Marie has made extensive trips into uh, Bosnia. She made extensive trips into other parts of Yugoslavia and Croatia. And, uh, the former Yugoslavia and Croatia comes to mind as well. And she's collected some extraordinary things from, from old farmers and from people who are growing the food, much in tradition. So the Bosnian pole bean, as you will know, is a particularly beautiful bean. It has a black and it has a beautiful can pattern in a way that makes it kind of jewel-like. And so I got these beans for uh, real. She's extremely protective about it. She gave me like five seeds or six seeds. And we planted the first ones in uh, Weatherstone in our uh, trial garden that Comstock and Barry company back uh, a couple of years back. And the plants that we planted, three seeds, I think they were, Produce hundreds of pots, so we were able to multiply those three seeds just adjust enough beans to grow all over the garden across America project. So that's how you're holding these right now is because they're so productive. So I would highly um, recommend them out and giving them to people because it's a wonderful dry shoot bean, but I also believe that it can be used as a uh, as a green bean as well. I'm not certain on that, because we know the stipulation is how stringy is it. That's what most people want to know when they're cutting up and preparing green beans nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. It's so beautiful. It looks sophisticated. It could be jewelry. Yep, sophisticated. That's a good word for it, Matt. Sophisticated bean. 
That's pretty cool. <laughs> well, it's true. It's it's it. I mean, I literally could see people wearing it and it passing, and people being like, not picking up on the fact that it's just beans. I mean, they they were some type of uh, some some type of uh, bean that was created uh, by an artist. That's how beautiful they are. Absolutely, I don't even think an artist could get that kind of variation and, and delicacy with color. You know what I mean? Over such a broad spectrum, it's it's just amazing. It's pretty ridiculous. Yeah, and possibly so. I mean, so I'm looking at Fava One, the red modeled. Um, that I mean, this th th like this. This is exquisite. It's it's got pale like turtle colored green, and then it has. This 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 burgundy mottled color to it, but it's almost like it's almost like what they used to do with uh, the the projectors and the colorful acid color. You know, they they would go in the '60s and put like colorful slides on, and then then put dye on it and move the dye around. It's incredible. You know what it reminds me of, and you may have seen these kind of linoleums or old tile in very old homes in America. They used to have linoleum that was uh, kind of this kind of suffused modeled uh, pattern. And so this fava bean that you're talking about, we still haven't given it a name. And just to be precise, just to explain to your listeners, Matt, not everywhere do people give concise specific names to their vegetable variety. When you go to um, Peru, where this particular bean uh, was discovered, uh, and you ask the name, they'll say it's an ava, which is a generic reference to that it's a fava bean in English. So having that um, limitation, we, of course, want to be more specific and share something that identifies the specificities of the bean. Uh, so inevitably... My brother is going to give it a name. I think it's his right to. He was the one who tracked it down and found it. But like you say, it is so gorgeous, it's almost indescribable. What I need to interject is that bean is over a year and a half old. If you had seen it when it was in its fresh, dry state the first two, three, four, five months, it would have been much vivider and as such, almost indescribably beautiful. So you're holding something pretty precious here. So I think you have, how many of those seeds do you have? Uh, I have three of each. Uh, I have the three dark modeled and the three of the green modeled. Okay. Well, like I said, keep them separate, grow them out, and love those babies because they're as rare as they can be. Wow, it's so exciting. So there's this other one, the number 36, the one that looked like, like Sungwood from Asia. These... It's just incredible, the, the dark patina on these. Okay, now what is this now? The uh, the other fava beans from Patty's collection, number 36. Number 36. Uh, what, what's the color pattern? It looks like it's got a, it's it's like a, a, a dark sunburst pattern, like on a guitar, except it's coffee colored. Would you say that this uh, bean had a fingerprint? pattern or you're saying it has a sunburst pattern no no it's a sunburst pattern there's no thumbprint on it they're huge and long 
okay, that one is slipping my recognition, but you must give me credit. I know my teeth pretty well. I mean, you do uh, over the phone it. know them that well. That is definitely amazing. The Fagiola di, di Angelo del Imperia. What is this one? Uh, that's a spectacular bean, too. So you recall when we were talking about the Zucca di Verena, uh, uh that seed swap was in Torilia, Italy, which is a little village that has like a uh, church that's four or five hundred years old, and it has a few little old rim castles. And this is where they had the Torilia seed swap. And it brought several hundred uh, old farmers, old seed collectors to this little village to exchange seed. And so there, I was uh, admiring a little setup of sunflower seeds and some runner beans and some beans, and there was a few little potatoes there. This little farmer was sitting there with a little beret on, and I asked him about his beets, and he said, well, you can have all of them because it was the end of the show. And I said, well, what do you call this one? And, of course, the Italians generally name their variety. They're more, they're more precise. So in this case, uh, he said, well, I don't really have a name for this one, as if he was apologizing. And he said, but my name is Angelo, so you could call it Fagiolo di Angelo. And I asked him, I said, Angelo, where are you from? And he said, Del Imperia. So it became the Fagiolo, del, del, uh, the Fagiolo di Angelo del Imperia. Uh, which is really a beautiful story. And he told me, he said, I'm going to give you all of these because I want you to share them with people in America. He said, and I want you to think of me when you're growing up. And so every time I give this bean out or any time I plant it, I think of this beautiful old man who just had the warmest heart and the the most calloused of hands. He was a true... uh, He was a truly strong individual in heart and courage. And I mean, it just... You know, I just see a smile to this day of him handing those seeds over so happily that somebody was interested in them. Oh, wow. That's awesome. And the beans are just gorgeous. They've got these speckles on them, these little, little, and they're not specks. They're almost like windows into the other color pattern. It's really phenomenal. I'll try to capture that in the picture I take. Yeah. That would be great. Yeah, that's a great bean. He gave me a beautiful sunflower, too. Oh, I didn't get that one. I'll have to look into that one later, maybe next year. So you get, you insisted yeah, I try I mean, this Gory Point Pepper. Oh, boy. Yeah, the Gory Point Pepper is also a beautiful story because I was um, on my way to the Svanti, which is a region in kind of northwestern uh, Georgia. And on the way, I passed through the city of Gory. And Gory, of course, is a market town. And many of the... Uh, the regional area farms bring all their produce, which is often traditional produce, not commercially produced. People, little farmers driving in with an old Lada, which is an old Russian Soviet uh, vehicle, so laden with vegetables. And so here in uh, this particular time, and people straightening up these kind of heart-shaped, blunt peppers, and they were stringing them up on lathe. I thread them. And so I was looking at this, and I said, this is really amazing. And I asked the lady uh, through a translator, this was hot. And she said, very hot. So I took a little bite of it and nearly burned my tongue off. But I was able to get points. It looked kind of, uh, if you were to take a jalapeno and you were to squash it into a, a fatter jalapeno, it would be very almost as long as it is 
very interesting triangle-shaped conical pepper. Huh. I guess you would describe it like very interesting. That's awesome. Well, I don't. I, I don't do peppers usually that are sweet. I, I usually focus on making hot sauce. So we'll we'll see how that works with making hot sauce out of that this year. Oh, yeah. yeah I remember watching those things. Um, they had, I had a, a, a hotel to the door back to Armenia. And I was uh, I had I had rotted them in some Ziploc bags. Uh, you, know, you know, they weren't completely rotten. They had deep, they had, uh, they had mushed up. And so I had a bit full of these mushed up peppers. So I poured it in and I put cold water into it and I remember just coughing my head off because for some reason, even with the cold water, the oil were volatile and it was filling the room with captain and it was just burning the heck out of my nose and throat. I had to leave my hotel room. But then it went back in and I washed the, the pulp out seeds on the bottom of the bucket and I eventually got it done but with eyes and uh, runny nose and, uh, and sneeze all the way through it. <laughs> well, I will I will think about that as I do it myself for you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Alright, so we have uh, the Pearl White Israel and then the Eshkol Magnificent Israel uh, Peanuts. The Eshkol Magnificent and the Pearl are peanuts that were part of the peanut program. And what they were really trying to do is come up with a uh, good uh, pulse crop for the that. Of course, peanuts are adaptable if you're given at least a year to hot, arid conditions. And so the peanuts are natural for Israel. And that wool giant is really huge peanut. Pearl white is, you know, about pea size, but a very pretty white peanut. So as a, the skin and all is white. It, it's really beautiful. I don't know much more I can say about them, but I was impressed that the Israelis had such a diversity of uh, peanuts to choose from. So you've got two so ones in the shoes well for you just to keep them separated this year by at least a few hundred feet because peanuts uh, um, are fertile, but they can also um, be pollinated by certain bees. And although the flowers are low to the ground, meaning they don't necessarily attract a number of bees, they are visited um, by them. So you got to kind of separate them. So there are, there's one... There is one seed that you gave me that you didn't label. It was these two purple beans that are, they've got this really speckled kind of, and this will be the last of the, of the, of, of the series of seeds that you gave me. And they are purple and they've got this blackish kind of, um, Disperse, scattered. Yeah, I know exactly what it is. So, 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 what you have there is a purple model uh, cowpea, which to us is almost unheard of. I mean, one has a purple cowpea because this, this is a, this is a kind of grayish blue. It's not grayish blue, and it's not gray. It is purple, purple, and it's speckled with white. Now, those seeds are about two years old, and those were given to me by a man from Senegal who had attended the World Food Congress of Slow Food, the Terra Madre, 
They're the biggest cowpea I've ever seen. Yeah, they're, they're beautiful. Absolutely. So I really appreciate you coming on and sharing all your wisdom and your experience and your stories and your seeds with us. And I hope that more people join in your Gardens Across America project and buy from the National Rare Vegetable Seed Consortium. And I hope that the actual the actual website that my sister has is growrareseed.com. It, 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 um, it, she has a, she's gleaning these from the things that we've been uh, growing out. She's gleaning them from my collections that we've had imported to uh, seed companies overseas who get paperwork done for me. And it's really an extraordinary uh, thing to see. And, and that, when you said my gardens across America, I just want to point out that it is essentially gardens across America because that's we just want to share gardens with everyone. Family, like you said in the beginning, just families involved with it, children growing things and sharing the marbles of nature because it's just such a beautiful element of life and no matter we are, no matter how sophisticated we live, whether it's in a giant skyscraper in New York City, even a boat in a harbor, inevitably almost every single one of us has to conceive that we depend upon the soil to feed us. And that's why it isn't something that is, you know, inflated it's essential to life itself. And to human life, there's no limitation that. That's why this is important. And if you think about that, there's something extraordinary and beautiful about it. And that's the feel that keeps me doing what I'm doing because there have been so many times now, it just seems like I'm pushing a giant boulder up the hill trying to teach people about that. And I just know that with every fiber in my body that it's something I have to do. So maybe I'm irrational, but I just have this plan inside me that tells me it has to be done. Me too. And I really hope that you do what you said about, about coming out with that book in the next year because I know I would get I would want a copy and I know that everyone who listens to this episode is going to want a copy of a book, you know, with, with some highlights of your best stories and the best seeds. And we just want, you know, to be able to leaf through and, and see that and then get inspired to take care of that in our own backyard. Okay, because of your public imploring, I will promise that I'm going to dedicate the book in part to your persuasion. I will get a book done. I've been thinking about it for years. I've been contacted by many publishers to do uh, various books. And I know this is the next endeavor, which I have to set myself uh, to do. It's just that the way I've lived life as almost a complete nomad, fairly conducive to writing a book. But I have to do this, and I thank you for joining me. And I will, I will dedicate you and in the, in the uh, preface as one of the people who influenced me. 
for sure. Absolutely. It's going to be amazing. Oh, thank well, thank you, you. Well, thank you so much for talking. I, I really appreciate your energy. I, impre- I, I I was impressed with your passion at PV2, and I had been following your work for years. And so when I finally got to hear you talk in person, it just kind of, it really kind of raised the bar for me because I was about to go and speak at PV2. So I really appreciated that and meeting you again this year, spending time talking about seeds. It's it's really exciting. It feels like we're taking part in a much bigger movement, and it's people like you who have been working on this for forty five years that uh, have really brought it to where it is now, so that people like me can show up and uh, help make a difference. Well, I mean, if you do get on the shoulders of people who come before you, you can get there much quicker. I mean, I can see. All the incredible people who've influenced me down the years. I mean, whether it's like bits and pieces or this dramatic generosity, they have all uh, brought this to everyone else. So I'm just like a channel in a, in a certain way of uh, thinking to share what others have shared with me. That's that's part of this. You know, I think of Pete so well, a man who was almost unknown to the public. He was a, a person very private. He was very kind of secluded in the world. He lived in a little, uh, very modest home uh, on a main street called Muskrat Town Road in a little town called Bishopville, Maryland. And when I went to visit uh, Curtis Sorrell, I was humbled that a man who did not have the modern skills of using computer did not have, you know, probably a very um, sophisticated life, and he had accomplished everything he did, and it's shared with people by his passion. And what did he do? He was a squash and watermelon collector. He loved the squash. He loved watermelons. And when he went into his home, he had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of varieties of squash. And he tell you about squash from almost everywhere in the world. And over the years that he had done this, he shared seed with hundreds of people in seed banks as far as way as Taiwan and Germany. It was amazing what he did. And this man did not use a computer. He was just a passionate soul. And so I'm standing on the shoulder hand, and I hope they have that same opportunity because when you look back in life, you realize that you really owe yourself um, to so many people who spent time sharing with you. And that's what we have to do for the future of our country and for the future of the world. Share with other people. Thank you very much, Matt. And I really appreciate this um, this call and this opportunity. And I, I certainly love your family, and I'm going to be keeping very close dibs on what you do with those treasures in hand. All right. Well, I'll film and I'll take pictures and I'll share with everyone. Thank you very much. Have a good evening. All right. You you. too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining me for that journey with Joseph Simcox talking about 
Gardens Across America, talking about the National Rare Vegetable Seed Consortium, talking about the Botanical Explorer, talking about seeds and stories and families. Joseph's a great guy, and I love to see him speak. I love his energy, and I hope someday you'll be able to join us in growing some of the rarest seeds possible. So check out his stuff on growrareseeds.com, and check out the pictures that I'll be posting of this. These seeds are absolutely incredible, and everyone should have seeds that look like this. Thank you, and have a good night.